You're listening to the Better Health Podcast with April, a platform dedicated to coaching women in areas of health, lifestyle, and legacy by speaking with leading health and wealth experts and with the goal to inspire women to thrive in their lives today and in the future. Now, on to today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Better Health. Today, I have the honor to speak with Dr. Nasha Winters, who helps so many with their battles with cancer. She has been um, going through cancer for 27 years and she's taking a metabolic approach to it and she's helping others to do the same. It's such an honor. I'm excited for you to hear about her story. Welcome to the show, Dr. Nasha. Thank you so much, April, and to all of your listeners. It's great to be here with you today. Awesome. It's going to be so amazing. I'm so looking forward to diving in what you have to offer. Um, To warm us up, though, I would first love to know, where are you from and what was your childhood and family like in regards to health? Oh, gosh. (laughs) You're like, let's just go right into the the, the belly of the beast. Okay. Well, I grew up, I was born and raised in Wichita, Kansas. Mm -hmm. Spent my summers on a farm. My family was from small towns around that part of the country. Um, Very Midwestern you know, very wholesome upbringing, but lots of like jello salads at the, at the family gatherings. Um, that was one component. Now, because I spent a lot of time on the farm in the summers, um, one of my aunts and uncles had gardens and they had their own cow and we milked the goats and I'd have my goat milk in the morning with Ovaltine, disgusting, but that's how it was. So I think I had a couple really good food options, but over time that became less and less likely. Like the garden kind of went to seed and people stopped growing the garden again and everyone kind of moved into the realm of massive you know monsanto farming methods and getting away from kind of raising your own food and more going into the industry of farming so that was happening in the country around me and then in the city area where i was i lived in a part of the country where in the middle of the country wichita kansas there's a lot of like pepsico the Koch brothers lear boeing beach aircraft a lot of industry so it was a, a military bases when i look at my zip code today on the epa superfund site I lived near seven super funds, you know, like it's just crazy just to see those things. And then because of uh, being uh, from a broken home and a lot of trauma and addiction and abuse in my upbringing, by the time I was 11 years old, my patient, my parents were divorced. So then my mom had to go into the workforce even more than she already was. We were already in a poverty environment prior to that, but more so after the divorce, just trying to do it all by herself. So the three jobs she had to work to keep a roof over our head and her pride not tapping into social systems that were available to us, Mm -hmm. um, my brother and I were basically latchkey kids. So food, to your point, was very much (laughs) convenient and cheap, Mm. right? The vast majority of people living on the planet today, or at least in the Western world, that's how it is. So from age 12 until I graduated high school at 18, my, I, I began working full-time at uh, basically at 12 years old to help over the overhead in our family. And the job that I worked in was in the food court in the mall at hot dog on a stick. Wow. And so, you know, that I think kind of always freaks people out to know my history now, but that was, we were so poor that really I lived on probably five days a week. Hot dog on a stick was my main 
food and my family too. I'd bring back leftovers of cheese sticks and hot dogs on a stick and lemonade and, you know, all those things. So it was just like sugar crap, processed food, lots and lots of corn. I mean, it was no wonder that I had so many health issues. So that kind of lets the stage around you of knowing that poverty, uh, Midwest sort of, um, you know, upbringing changes in agriculture and the way we started to grow our food as well as just the reality of being kind of a latchkey kid in the in the um, 70s and 80s and working and living in fast food environments, that was what set the stage for my health, I suppose, or lack thereof. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. You you have not only a crazy um, background, but also a crazy story that I'll tap into in a little bit here. But before we dive into like what ultimately got you into health, your back and your story and journey, uh, what do you do differently now from obviously when you were younger, um, yeah. do you do gardens? Like wh what looks differently? Cause I'm sure it's very drastic, uh, yeah. but what are a few key pieces? Oh my gosh. Like it's pretty much all different today. <laughs> like every element. So I am an avid label reader. I do not eat things that come in packages. I want it to be closest to the source as possible. I want it, did it come out of a tree, out of a nest, out of a, a source of water? Did it come out of the sky, out of the soil? You know, there's that piece. I also am very, very um, militant about the quality of my food. So I want it to not be chemical, um, chemical sprayed or uh, irradiated or, um, you know, basically processed or having any amount of preservatives in it whatsoever. I'm really, really thoughtful about my water source today. Even in my little pristine mountain town of Durango, Colorado, if you go to the ewg.org website, environmental working group is what that stands for. You can tap in your water source, your zip code. And in my beautiful, pristine mountain town in Colorado, we have seven known carcinogens in our city water source um, and 20 questionable ones. So if they're questioning it, please just assume, right? So I'm very, very like we have a whole house water filter and a water drinking water filter on top of it. When I travel, I travel with a small Berkey, you know, or I travel with a grail water bottle. Um, again, I stay with real food. And if I can't find real food when I'm on the road, I'll fast. I mean, those are the biggest changes. I also try to be mindful of what I'm living near. It's impossible to live any place on the planet today, it's clean and pristine, but I do my best to avoid. So my neighbors around me where I live, we've really done a huge education so that my neighbors are no longer spraying their lawns with glyphosate. I'm like, I try to tell them that dandelions are your friend and you know things like that. So we've also educated our community, uh, not just you know my own household, but who lives around me plus my town. I did a ton of free lectures in my library at my community. I did a lot of, I've been on lots of boards about trying to create clean parks. So we're not doing sprays on these things, a lot of education to my patients. So I'm very passionate about anything we put on ear in and around us today. And you're getting ready to get to the why of that. But basically the way I grew up is completely opposite of how I live, think, eat, feel, breathe, you know, treat my skin, my body um, today than ever before. It's a night and day difference. And it's so powerful what you're doing and how you are educating people. It's not just, you know, a lifestyle change for yourself, but now that you have researched, you have seen the results of everything you are now giving back to your community and educating. And that is so powerful. And that's where, you know, 
the ripple effect starts to really grow. And wow, that's amazing. Amazing. Um, so yes, now getting into the heart of it all, what got you into health and please just explain your story because I was blown away when I first heard it. Yeah. So uh, you'll kind of join, I kind of jumped in my mom to give you background. My mom tells me to this day who, you know, I'm, I will be 50 this year and my mom's in her, you know, mid seventies now. And, um, I, I laugh because she talks about, you always try to kick the ashtray off my belly. So that'll even tell you at the time, 50 years ago, doctors were telling women to smoke, to keep the birth weight down for their children. Um, there was that piece. I was also, um, my, I, I came on after a, uh, loss. My mom had a stillbirth before me and that trauma and drama and the fear that she must've held in her body of wondering what was going to happen for this next go had to have come through. Also, my mom was in a relationship with somebody she shouldn't have been in, you know, a relationship with. And so everyone kind of thought the pregnancy or this birth would bring, uh, you know, healing to the relationship. So the expectations that a baby would somehow change the circumstances was sort of hanging over this. I tell you those pieces because the, the thought process of the parents, the thought processes of the sperm donor and the egg donor into your system also make a difference as well as the culture and the climate around it. So, you know, that just gives a little preclude to the fact that I was not even conceived in uh, an environment that was conducive to a, an optimal health, right? So just that piece. Plus once I was born, I reacted to every single formula imaginable because in 1971 in Kansas, breastfeeding was totally out of the question. So um, I also later <laughs> learned, natural, that, I know, no. right? It's like, out of you know, question. <laughs> yeah, just not, it was just the timing. We started changing our our understandings and our belief systems around breastfeeding in the 1940s and basically made it very taboo, which is insane, but that's what we did. So um, it came down to the fact that the only one I could quote unquote tolerate, and by that, that's a matter of opinion, was a soy formula. This is in the early 70s. So that being said, I also, as I got older, I pooped once a month and the pedi pediatricians told my mom that was normal because that was just you know, that's her pattern. Well, that's nothing about that is normal, right? Um, by the time I was nine years old, I started menstruating, you know, in 1979, you know, 1980, that, you know, we see that today. I see menstruating, you know, six-year-olds today, nine-year-olds today, which is absolutely not normal, but what way more common it wasn't back then. So understanding now, like all that soy coming in was really clicking on all kinds of hormonal changes in my body. By the time I was 11, I had such severe endometriosis. They put me on birth control pills, extremely high potency birth control pills. By the time I was 14, I had cervical dysplasia treated with uh, a cryoablation surgery, repeated itself at 16. That time it had moved into a cervical cancer process. By the time I was 19, I'd spent six months in and out of the ER with all kinds of digestive issues. At that point, by the time I was 19, I had was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, thyroid dysfunction, poly, um, major, major, major acne, like thick cystic acne all over my face, chest, back, shoulders. Um, I know I'm missing other things here, chronic UTIs, chronic, uh, in fact, you know, throat infections, that's all by the time I, plus two rounds of basically cervical dysplasia and cervical cancer, 
all of those things by the time I was 19 years old. So in and out of the hospital, they just thought it was more of my endometriosis causing the symptoms or IBS causing the symptoms that I was having, or that I was just a histrionic crazy lady. So they would just like send me like Xanax and put me on an antidepressant and send me on with antibiotics, which then caused yeast overgrowth, which then they put me on antifungals, which then caused major, I mean, just it was a hell on earth experience. And I still, because I never really knew what health was, still didn't realize how abnormal this was Mm -hmm. until I got to the point where I literally couldn't lift myself up out of a chair without feeling incredibly weak, not able to take a deep breath, wondering why my belly, no matter how little I ate was getting bigger and bigger. And why my, my little legs and arms were getting smaller and smaller and why the excruciating pain I was experiencing every time I even had a tiny bit of food. Um, and I wasn't pooping. I stopped having any bowel movements, all kinds of things. When I would eat, I would throw it up. All these things landed me in the hospital with low, low, low oxygen levels with fluid buildup in my abdomen known as ascites with in-stage organ failure of my heart, my liver, my kidneys, everything was in trouble. I had fluid wrapped around my heart, in my lungs, all over my abdomen, about eight and a half liters that first time. And it was at that time that someone finally decided to look under the hood instead of just send me another script and send me on my way to realize I was in end-stage organ failure secondary to stage four ovarian cancer. I was 19 years old, just shy of my 20th birthday. The Mm. official diagnosis didn't come until a couple of weeks after biopsy and everything got brought back in, Um, didn't come till a few weeks after my 20th birthday, but I had been brewing with this for some time. So just to give you and your listeners context, when I landed in the hospital, they kept me overnight for observation. They drained some of that fluid that was part of what was sent off for pathology. They did proper imaging, they got tests. My CA-125 marker was in the 15,000 range. Um, I had a huge grapefruit-sized tumor on my right ovary. That's what the cause of the pain was. The fact that I wasn't pooping and every time I'd eat, I'd throw up, I had a small bowel obstruction. Um, And my liver and kidneys were in complete failure. So they told me then that I wasn't even a candidate for chemotherapy, that I was now just a a candidate for hospice, which in our community, hospice didn't exist back in 1991. Um, And so basically they sent me home to die and said, well, here's the name of an oncologist. You can go see them, spent the night, uh, came back, found the oncologist a couple days later, had my visit. And she basically said, you're uninsured, you're stage four, you're in stage, you're too weak, you're too sick to do anything. Um, I don't really, there's nothing I can offer you. I could give you treatment, but it will likely kill you straight out. And that was pretty much it. So I was left to my own devices and that's where the story really begins. Wow. That is incredible. And it really gives everyone context of the fact that like, you know, once one thing starts, it's a, it's a domino effect of like, there's so many different things that can play into one certain problem that you may be experiencing and you truly, and what you'll dive into, what you ended up doing based off of those results is like taking responsibility of your health, which nobody knows your body better than you do. And so you were basically told like, you know, we just got to give up on the process. Like it's kind of hopeless And you didn't accept that. So what did you end up doing based off of those results? (laughs) Interestingly enough, and and I've I've shared this a little bit in some podcasts and some interviews, but at that time in my life, Mm -hmm. I did not have any glimmer of hope where I came from the expectations of what I could do in the world, what I could accomplish in the world was incredibly limiting. Um, And I knew there was something more, but I didn't see that I had any access to it. 
So there's that piece. I tried to take my life on multiple occasions um, and definitely fantasized about that on a regular basis. So that first moment was like when I, I knew something was really wrong. And I, this first moment was, oh, thank God, I have a really good excuse. I can kind of go out as a murder, you know, like, oh, she died is horrible. Sad, how sad and tragic. And then I could just leave and just be done with the pain of my life. But when they told me there was absolutely nothing they could do. And when I realized I had been so discarded and ignored and downplayed in my experience for so long, what it did for me instead of making me deflate entirely and give in and give up was it actually lit a little pilot light inside of me that said, what if there is more? What if you aren't limited? What if you can do something about this? I still had zero expectation that I was going to live. That was not my goal. My goal was to understand why I reached that point. I wanted to understand why, because as I said before, it was never, it never dawned on anybody that there was something wrong with me through all of those years. And yet in this moment to even have people going, we don't see a 20 year old with cancer, you know, at that time, it just wasn't happening back in 1991. There was no Dr. Google. There was, you know, no internet. There was nothing out there to help support me and help me understand this. Even today, there's not much of that. I have to do that for other people. Right. So that's what sent me on this journey, this exploration of why. And thankfully, being in a small mountain town in a small liberal arts school with a pretty underfunded library with sort of outdated textbooks, I was blessed enough to run across the work of Otto Warburg and of um, Antoine Beauchamp and others from kind of the 1800s and early 1900s, which were these ideas that cancer was not a genetic disease, which is still the, the main uh, ideology of today that it was in fact so yeah. yeah exactly it was between Machamp and Dr and Warburg's work made me realize that it was about the terrain about what those genetics were fueled from what were they were expressed from and I was pre-med so I had a scientific brain I was you know into my second years in my sophomore year of college I was in advanced physiology courses anatomy zoology uh, microbiology genetics I was in all the the major sciences at that time and so I already had a good understanding of the basics of physiology and biochemistry of the body, but it took me on a, an exploration to dig deeper. So that was number one. Number two, the moment that oncologist told me there was nothing I could do, I went right to my little public library, um, knew nothing about anything in the integrative oncology alternative world, nothing, right? I only knew science, conventional based science. And a book just leapt out to me um, called Quantum Healing by at that time, a very obscure man known as Deepak Chopra, who today is like almost a household name. Um, I sat down and literally inhaled that book in about two hours sitting on the floor of that library in a little sunbeam, you know, in the fall of 1991, just like, oh my God. And it's a concept about a paradigm shift. And I literally feel like I had a paradigm shift in that moment between that and then finding the work of Bachamp and finding the work of Warburg, huge aha for me. Also what was happening in that time is because I had a bowel obstruction and because I was so sick, I couldn't eat. So I literally did not eat for two and a half months. Okay. That is actually probably what saved my life. We now fast forward nearly 30 years are doing the studies on the power of intermittent fasting and cancer. We have a 1909 study that came out uh, by a gentleman named Dr. Moreshi, M-O-R-E-S-C-H-I. If you Google him, Moreshi fasting tumor 
you'll pop up his original work, which showed that simply fasting had an impact on shrinking the cancer tumors. But between the fasting and all those things I was learning without knowing, this was not willful knowledge. This was all accident, right? A lot of things in science come from accidents, right? Um, I literally gave my body the ability because I had to keep having my stomach tapped and drained of the fluid that was building up that caused a lot of um, discomfort as well. So having that fluid, my body filled up less, fat, less and less quickly each time I had it drained. Um, and the bowel blockage slowly started to improve upon itself on its own without any other interventions. I didn't have to have surgery or a colostomy or anything. And I could feel the mass in my right lower abdomen improving. And I could just feel just a little bit better. And that's on literally nothing. Mm -hmm. Then I started stumbling upon things like Powdarko tea and uh, you know other stuff. I found an acupuncturist who helped me with my digestion and my stress management. I found a therapist who was helping me with doing trauma resolution work. I went on a family fast. Um, I came from a lot of trauma and background. I did a two year family fast of complete isolation from that. And I started to build a tribe of people who really could support me. That also then led to me just getting more and more curious and digging um, deeper and deeper into the biochemistry and physiology and all these other pieces. So that has been an ongoing living laboratory experience for myself. And then later on medical school and postgraduate ed um, education and ongoing training with physicians and researchers all over the world, my own curiosity, my insatiable desire to keep learning. I probably read a thousand research articles a month. Um, I inhale many books. I mean, I'm constantly learning still today and the information we keep learning about um, still today. So now not only have I helped myself, but I've helped thousands and thousands of other patients. And now I support doctors in teaching them how to apply the methodology that I've learned to test, assess, and address every patient to help precisely and personally support them and not just put them on a protocol because protocols don't work. What worked for me wouldn't work for you or anybody else. Um, and so I help people really create the methodology and the critical path forward to determine what's best for them or their patient to navigate this um, uncertain territory. Right, right, wow, Ooh. yeah. A lot, but a lot of great information that gives people hope. It, um, it forces people to start thinking about, you know, getting outside of the box and looking into different methods and um, researching and really doing that hard work for, you know, amazing results in the end, because obviously like you look amazing <laughs> years down the road and you obviously saw results, which is so, so cool. Um, what were some of the diet changes that you ended up making and what did you find out about, um, you know, like carbs and fats and, um, get, dive a little bit into that. I'd love to know more. Sure. Well, it's interesting when I was running across the work of Dr. Otto Warburg, I was like, wow, that's amazing. But we didn't have like, no one ever told us back in 1991 that we were eating too much sugar. Like I, there wasn't any way for me to even know or monitor or really test whether I was eating too much sugar. Cause I, my mind, just like that of most patients I've ever worked with, we think of sugar as like that bowl on your kitchen table with a little lid on it. You open up and has that white granular stuff inside, you know, like that's what we consider sugar. There was no way in my mindset I was thinking legumes and grains and tubers and you know honey and maple syrup and all the other things. I was not thinking of any of those things as sugar at that time. I also then ran across the work of Dr. Gerson from the 1940s and 50s, this man's work in um, dietary support for cancer. Now, it was very much a vegetarian-based diet, um, which is still kind of popularized today. And today's version of it is not what, quote unquote, 
the father, you know, Dr. Gerson meant it to be, you know, it was never meant to be a vegan vegetarian raw food diet. It was never meant to be that. In fact, one of the critical cornerstones of his diet person in his work was showing that there had been some shifts happening in our food system from the industrial food revolution that began in the 1850s. He was seeing that people were eating much more processed food, many more grains, much more bread. And he was saying that was definitely causing insult to injury. And he also saw that when we started introducing iodized, processed, bleached sodium chloride salt, that Morton salt that's in everything you eat, unless you go to great lengths to avoid that, that was also poisoning the body and causing a shift in having way more sodium chloride versus potassium chloride. And we have all these interesting pumps in our body and in our biochemistry that we are much more effective in our cellular activity when we have a better balance of potassium over sodium. So he shifted the diet to really push for potassium. That's why he did have a lot of juicing and vegetables, but the juicing he did was in all of the above the ground, low carbohydrate vegetables, a lot of the leafy greens, the cucumbers, the parsley's, all of those things. But the day today's um, version of Gerson is all about juicing carrots and beets and apples, which they all taste good to our sugar addicted taste buds. And there is no use of the um, liver anymore, not in any form, not injections, not in eating it, not in eating it, you know, encapsulated. All of the important things of his work basically have gotten left out of the modern version of it. So the modern version of it does not work nearly as well. And for me at that time, because it was the only thing I was reading about, I did start on Gerson. I, of course, started out with fasting. Today, we have so many studies on why intermittent fasting or even long-term fasting can be helpful in the cancer process. But I all then jumped into what was Father Gerson's original work because I had his original book and work from the 1940s and 50s. So I wasn't using the popular version. I got a champion juicer. I started juicing, you know, um, 20, 30 ounces of green drinks a day. I started drinking about a gallon of Paldarco tea today. Um, I started taking liver injections because I could still get them then. Um, but I also had become a vegetarian. In fact, I'd become a, veg a vegetarian when I was 16 years old. And so the other information I was reading at that time was saying, become a vegan. So I became a vegan um, when I started running across that and let go of the iron, I mean, the um, liver. So suddenly, like in the beginning, I probably gave myself a running start, but in about six months into that, I started realizing, oh, maybe I should be vegan raw food. And I did that for seven years. And because of how I was eating before, you guys heard my story of like jello salads and hot dog on a stick. That was such a giant shift and improvement that my body was like, yes, finally real food cofactors. Cause there was no vegetables in my diet. Canned corn was the only vegetable. It is not a vegetable. It is a grain <laughs> and it was like canned cream corn. I don't even know what that is. Oh, and so, you know, like our idea of vegetables, like green beans, green beans are also not a vegetable, right? They're a legume. And so I really didn't eat vegetables. So for me to jump into a place where I was suddenly eating vegetables, that was a huge improvement mm -hmm. for me.
But my body also was very malnourished from years and years and years of medications of years of, so like your hormones, your birth control pills, take away all your B vitamins and all your fat soluble vitamins, all the antibiotics I'd been on, the antifungals I'd been on also destroyed so many of my nutrients. My gut was absolutely trashed from all those things. So my nutrient absorption was a problem. I had no iron storage. I was not perfusing. I had no oxygen getting to my cells, to my tissues. So I was fermenting and stewing even more in my own, you know, sort of metabolic and mitochondrial filth. My body could not take the garbage out. You heard about my lack of pooping, like everything. My body's just like, Hey, let's just hold on to all the toxins. And like, let's get rid of all the good stuff. My body was mixed up very much. Mm -hmm. It took me years and it took me until I got into medical school somewhere between 1996 and 1997, I had a, a Dr. Deng, my Chinese medicine professor, basically in a tongue pulse um, evaluation and talking to me about my health and teaching me because I was also studying acupuncture at the time. He basically said, you're dying, which I was very, very private about what was going on with me. And he's like, you have to eat some animal protein. And he's just looking at my tongue. He's looking at my pulses. He's looking at my labs. He's looking at my constitution. And he's like, yeah, you are completely depleted, you know? And so I started at that time to bring in a little bit of eggs mm -hmm. and a little bit of dairy. I still wasn't ready to do anything beyond that. Mm -hmm. It was like a big light switch went off for me. And that was definitely an improvement over time. By the time I graduated medical school, I would eat fish like twice a month. Um, by the time which I graduated um, from there in 2000, by the time I started to incorporate more animal protein, it was because I could not, like I, I like hit a wall where I couldn't get any better than I was. I was still alive, but I wasn't healthy and I didn't feel good. And that's when I started learning things about my body. Started learning that I had celiac disease. Duh, I should have known that all along. It's a family issue, had it, I've got the genes for it. I tested all the positive things where like, I definitely am celiac, right? So like there goes all gluten. Well, when I stopped the gluten, I jumped into the corn camp. So corn chips, corn tortillas, masa, oh, yeah. you know, like everything, polenta. I was like corn on corn on corn. And that felt very good of my upbringing is like, I could still kind of be in food uh, support with my family and friends, but there I was. So what I then learned was I was actually allergic to corn. Oh boy. Right. So awesome. I had celiac, but then I also realized I was adding fuel to the fire. I got super sick, super, super sick. And my cancer started going crazy again during my corn fest um, period of time. So I started learning more and more. It wasn't until um, 1996. Also, I was in one of the first testing for um, ovarian cancer for BRCA, the BRCA gene, which in 1996, I was one of the first people tested had the BRCA gene. Also, it was also a shock to me and my family of origin um, that the BRCA gene was mostly associated with the Ashkenazi Jewish population. That's what it was mostly related to. I'm a Methodist kid from Kansas, you know, like, like my grandma, the most pious Methodist on the planet. I was like, there's, this is like, no one understood what we knew then. It wasn't until, oh gosh, like 2000 four or five, I can't remember, somewhere in that zone, I had my epigenetics done. Mm. And sure enough, Ashkenazi Jewish in my blood, you know, so like the family of origin, you know, everyone's like, oh, look at all these crazy little things I was learning about myself, Native American in my blood that I learned about my grandfather when I was much older, um, in my twenties that he had Native American blood, like all these pieces that were like hidden mm. because people, for whatever reason, from my origin, 
was ashamed of their background. It's like, that's another part of the toxicity that I took on, not just my own lineage, my own genetics, but also what traveled through generations prior to me comes through our DNA and our epigenetic expression. That sounds woo woo and esoteric, but we're able to show studies that were at the very least impacted by four generations upstream of us, um, likely closer to 12 generations upstream from us. So crazy. there was that as well as living, like I said, in all those toxic environments. So I started learning a lot as the science was catching up to my experience. I was starting to understand things. It was not until 2010. So 11 years ago, folks, that I went completely grain free. So people are like, oh, you must have like when people read my work now, they're like, oh, she must have started out that way. I spent the first decade flopping around like a fish out of water trying to figure out how to just to keep myself alive. Right. And so many bad mistakes. I got so, so lucky that I've, I would like learn something about myself and pivot and shift and then learn something and pivot and shift. I got very clear that dogma was going to kill me faster than anything. And that data was going to be my life raft. That was huge. Let me repeat that dogma was going to kill me faster than anything and data was going to be my life raft that's when i started to apply testing to myself to my loved ones to my patients and started to see patterns and tendencies to make me understand that it wouldn't have to take me 10 years to help another patient get through this it might take me 10 minutes or 10 days or 10 weeks or 10 months but either way we'd have data guiding us so what i've spent the last decade learning is that we still are fighting each other on which diet is the diet, which diet is the best diet. It, it, first of all, it doesn't exist because we're all biochemically individual. I have learned so much about myself to know that I have certain SNPs that I do not make enough amylase to break down the sugars of legumes and tubers and um, grains. Mm -hmm. I have the genetics that make me um, need, a, I have to have things like fish oil versus flaxseed oil. I have genes that make me highly, highly responsive and reactive to mold and toxicities and to celiac disease and autoimmune diseases. That's the HLA-DQ gene, which is also how we found I had celiac. I also have tons and tons of SNPs with regards to how I respond to stressful situations. So stress and I are always duking it out and I'm always finding ways to manage it and live in harmony with it. And then one of the biggest ahas was the hormonal epigenetic expressions that I have that basically the years of being put on birth control to quote unquote treat and fix my problems was why I was dying. Like was literally what the light on the gas, you know, the gasoline lit on the pile of rubbish set off for me. And so I learned so many things about myself in that time. And I started learning these patterns on how to start to assess that for patients, which led me to the understanding of these sort of like 10 main drops in the bucket um, that is affecting all of us and how we can test, assess, address those and understand what makes each of us tick both preventatively. So you don't have to have a disease process calling you to action, um, but our human nature often makes it that we wait until we have a disease process to be called to action. So my hope and prayer is we'll shift that consciousness in my lifetime as well, but you know, gotta start somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. And yeah. it kind of leads to what I'm hoping to dive a little bit into before we start to wrap things up. Um, yeah. If for those that are listening and they're like tests, like what does she mean by tests? Like what are some of the tests that you specifically utilize to um, test, assess, and then, you know, ultimately help people. And then also like, what do you envision for healthcare and what do you hope that 
it will end up turning out to um, just by your work and many others like you and their impact. Perfect. Mm -hmm. So for testing, we can start out with just some very observational things. Um, you know, take a look at what's in your cupboard, in your refrigerator, in your freezer, in your medicine cabinet, under the kitchen counter, in your garage. Look at what toxins you might be unknowingly exposing yourself. Do you have scented candles? Do you have plug-ins? Do you use Febreze? Do you do dry clean? Do you use dryer sheets? Do you use non, you know, EWG tested body care products on your body um, that are basically big endocrine disruptors and just known carcinogens that you're putting onto the largest organ of absorption and elimination of your body? That's the mm -hmm. first test is like a kind of a personal inventory. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, also in my book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, I have a questionnaire at the front, which are assessing those 10 drops in the bucket that I alluded to with questions underneath each of those. So you can see your own blind spots. You might look at those 10 and go, wow, three of these are really kind of big for me. Maybe I'll go dive in and read those chapters to see maybe what I'm being exposed to, how to test for my expression of that and how to change things up and, and upgrade my life and my system around that. So then we look at tests itself. Blood tests are the simplest. Most people are used to getting kind of a physical exam annually. And typically when we do a physical exam, we often just look at a CBC, which is your blood count and a metabolic panel. But even then doctors don't do a discerning enough deep dive into it with their patients to look kind of between the lines. You have to remember that blood tests are based on the average of the population and we are a really sick population. So you do not want to be average. You want to be the outlier, right? So when I look at labs, I'm looking at them with a much finer tooth comb, you know, through the process, I'm wanting you to be in a functional therapeutic range versus a, oh good, we just have enough to have one quarter of your nostril out so you can survive, right? Like we need you to be a lot more hardy than that. So things like when I look at a CBC, I can look at how your immune system is functioning. Like right now on the day of COVID, if people have poor neutrophils, like high neutrophils with low lymphocytes, more than two to one of those, you have a higher risk for, for having a bad experience with COVID. If your platelets are high, you have likely a bad experience with COVID. If your white blood cells are low, you don't really have a means to fight infections around you. Those are just some examples that a simple $12 blood chemistry panel can show you right there. Mm -hmm. When we look at your CMP, that shows me your electrolytes, that shows me a little bit of your metabolic health, specifically your glucose levels, shows me your organ function. And so we can kind of do a little like, how's the, how's the terrain expressing right now? The other thing I think everyone should get a baseline of is a vitamin D3 level. Again, for your best prevention of metabolic disease, hormonal disruption, depression, COVID protection, your, your natural <laughs> antiviral, yes. your immune system, your epigenetic expression, your cancer prevention, vitamin D levels should be optimized. Mm -hmm. um, unless you're really outside in the sun, like I spend half my year down in a sunny climate where I can be dressed like this in the dead of winter, um, you know, where you are getting a good portion of your body exposed to at least 20, 30 minutes of sunshine daily. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't have epigenetic hiccups that prevent that from absorbing into your system. And you don't run off immediately and wash that stuff off with detergents and soaps on your skin. Cause it takes up to three days for that good vitamin D to synthesize in your skin. And if you've been eating a low fat diet for years or a vegan diet, you're automatically low in vitamin D3. You have to start to work that in. Best to do it through real sunshine, through real food, get your lard, get your butter, get your grass fed and finished animal protein, you know, get, get your um, coconut oil, get, use your oil-based cleansers on your skin, only soap up your pits and parts, 
you know, let that stuff process through. That is critical. Your thyroid, look at a full workup of your thyroid. And the big one is your insulin and your insulin, um, and your insulin response and your, how your body is utilizing sugar, which is something called a hemoglobin A1C. And basically hemoglobin A1C is showing us how quickly you're rusting. Okay. The higher that number, anything above five means that you're aging much quicker and that your cells are much more vulnerable to all the damage that they're being exposed to on a regular basis. In Western medicine, we say that you're not diabetic until that number goes above 5.7. By the time you even hit 5.2, you're in trouble, folks. Please don't wait for that number to go any higher because you're aging yourself. So I tell people, I feel like Benjamin Button now because my labs and my health and my skin and my vitality and my body composition and my blood sugars are better now than they were when I was in my twenties and in my thirties and in my forties. And I'm now encroaching into the fifties. And I love it that we can literally get younger because our fountain of youth is in the health and well-being of our mitochondria and our mitochondria, the health and well-being of our mitochondria are based on all those drops in the bucket we talked about. So whether it's your epigenetics, things you were born with, um, whether it's your dietary, like what fuel sources you're feeding, either too much sugar or not enough fat, um, uh, toxic exposure we've alluded to, microbiome issues, uh, immune system issues, inflammation, angiogenesis and circulation, like oxygen levels, hormone balance, um, stress and circadian rhythm response, as well as mental emotional toxicity. Those are the drops in the bucket. And any of those not working well or being beat up or punished or destroyed or damaged are gonna cause more inefficient mitochondrial metabolic functioning, making you more vulnerable and your genetics more vulnerable to all chronic illness, including cancer. And so if you really want to anti-age, you wanna dig into the drops in your bucket and you want to start tending to that pretty outwardly. And so to your point of where's this going in the future, we have to get away from the dogma. We have to get into the data and we have to start helping people know from the moment, like my dream would be that every child born gets their buccal swab done, sent off for epigenetics. So you know their propensities their strengths and their weaknesses early on and you start supporting them from the get-go. Because today kids born after 1980 are not expected to outlive their parents. That's the first time in human evolution that's ever happened. In the United States, we are the only country in the world, only country in the world that is losing longevity over the last three years. We haven't even brought into account the, this fourth year, which is the year of COVID, which we definitely have gone down in our life there. And so we have to start exploring that why, and we have to start exploring it well before you're sick. Mm -hmm. our, our medical system today is based on disease management not healthcare, wellness, and prevention. And so the future of medicine must go this direction. Mm -hmm. And then to some of the very specific projects I'm passionate about is sort of the education component we talked about earlier. Um, that's why I put out a book, even though it's called the metabolic approach to cancer, it should be kind of like the metabolic approach to life or health or wellness or prevention, et cetera. So it's good for everybody to look at. I'm also very passionate about women's health. I'm a woman, I had crappy health. I want to help that. So, so right, like that's weird. So, um, I'm part of a great organization, uh, the Women's Health Organization, that has a program called Powher Program with an H Powher Program um, with uh, Kayla and Dasha, and we are launching in uh, March 2021 the first ever one-year deep dive, data dive, research project, and basically. To high touch, high tech, a concierge approach to women's health. So these first 30 women are going to basically be part of a change in the movement. And our goal is to make this global 
and to change the face of women's health because women's health is not based on women's health. It's based on research of like old white guys yep. that does not apply to us. Right. And we, if there is women in the study, it's like, it's tiny, like it's tiny. It's and then they drop out because they're pregnant, you know, whatever. Exactly. Like all these filters, like we are not being looked at appropriately. You know, we are still being placed in sort of this dogma, not the data. And then the other piece is I'm now trained doctors on the methodology and critical path forward to help evaluate the terrain of their patients to help them navigate the cancer wilderness. But even bigger than that, I'm building the first, very first residential metabolic centric terrain centric oncology hospital research institute um, in the desert southwest of the united states it doesn't exist anywhere in the world and it's a 250,000 square foot facility on 300 acres where we're literally a hospital being born from a regenerative soil farm all about every aspect of those drops of the bucket we've talked about are being implemented and employed so we can be the prototype so we can be the model of what healthcare should be. And our vision is for this to become a global phenomenon that we are literally putting a, 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 a place like this on every continent, you know, in the world, if not every country mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is no, no big, um, you know, no small endeavor, but it's critical because of some of these harsh statistics that are facing us. We are not a a group of people on this planet getting healthier. In fact, I believe that COVID is exactly showing us the vulnerability and the underbelly of the reality of our situation. It's not the virus's fault, it's that we have very sick terrain. So Mm -hmm. the work of Antoine Bouchamp is really powerful time to go back and explore if you're listening to this for the first time go and understand the difference of germ theory, which is Pasteur's theory versus Bouchamp's theory of terrain to understand that we build disease into existence. We don't, we are not uh, victims of things coming at us. And so we are far more powerful than we've been led to believe. And we are far more powerful to make ourselves very resilient to whatever comes our way. Totally. And you're a true epitome of making yourself more resilient to whatever comes your way. And all the things you're doing are so just, it's so powerful and it's truly going to change the outlook of healthcare of like, versus like putting out the fire, um, not doing that, but actually taking the approach of, you know, preventing a fire from happening just through the health of like natural ways, you know, vitamin D, for example, like yeah. so many people are lacking that. And it's a natural thing that we all need and we're not getting near enough of. So just a beautiful picture you put there and you're truly making a difference. And it's just incredible to listen to what you have to say. And man, I'm learning so much. (laughs) Thank you. Really, really honored. Thank you. Yes, definitely. So to start wrapping things up, what are a few key takeaways you have for listeners before we dive into the rapid fire questions? Um, You know, the big, the big take homes are test, assess, address, don't guess. (laughs) Also don't assume. Okay. And one of the big ones is people always say to me, but I was healthy until I got cancer or, but I was healthy until I got IBS or, but I was healthy until I got schizophrenia or whatever it is. doesn't matter what you put in that line. Mm-hmm. You're not, you, you, it's an impossible. You live on the planet today. The things you're being exposed to, you're not even aware of. So you have to go deeper. That's that test and assess address. Don't guess component. Mm-hmm. And then fortify what you learn. Data is really powerful. 
and empowering and knowledge will change your outcomes. So you might've come from a long lineage of really scary disease processes, but you can turn that around. You can have the buck stop with you and you can change it within yourself and for future generations below you. Mm -hmm. So that's really big. And as I alluded to a moment ago, we are far more powerful than we're being led to believe. So we have a lot more opportunity to actually become more resilient, become stronger, and to start to look at and reach. Do not depend on outside environments to educate you. The world around us today is basically, and this sounds conspiratorial, but that's not, you know, I don't, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. It's the reality is that we are a world that is run by corporations and industries. And so the things that really determine health today are big pharma, big ag, you know, all those pieces, and they are incredibly censor censorship, you know, centric, and they want to sell a product. Being healthy is not a good product. It does not bring in revenue, right? And so the reality is, is be your own rebel, be your own renegade, be your own CEO of your body, be healthy so that you don't have to lean on those unreliable sources to keep you healthy and well. So those are kind of the big take-homes I want people to walk away with. Like, please get curious, please explore. If, if this doesn't resonate with you, great, just move on, don't even bother. But if it does, please find other people that are out there investing a ton of time, energy, and money to understand the why we've gotten to this point and what it's going to take to get out of Amazing. And for people listening, just rewind a few seconds back and re-listen to that because it's so many good takeaways there. And I feel like, you know, continuously every episode I have, it's like the same message of like, take responsibility over your health, be curious, don't just accept the first thing you hear and, you know, testing and rather than guessing is huge. So um, yes, wonderful takeaways. Now, to the heart of it all where it gets very difficult. <laughs> the rapid fire questions. <laughs> I'm ready. Let's do this. Let's do this. Okay. The first question I have for you, who is the most influential woman in your life? They could be past, present, someone you met, someone you have not. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's such a big one. Cause I, I feel like I have many uh, lanes of this. Mm -hmm. You know, when I think about it, the person who's probably been most influential in this iteration is probably Dr. Mina Bissell. She probably doesn't, you know, she probably doesn't know me from Sam, but I stalk her regularly. And she is sort of the modern version of, of the Bichamp and the Warburg of talking about terrain is everything. And so her work, I also stumbled upon within the first year or so of my diagnosis, which has really influenced me. And I've had the opportunity of hearing her and seeing her speak and read every bit of research she's published. She did a great Ted talk, um, called minding, um, uh, um, oh gosh, if you would just Google her Bissell, like the vacuum cleaner. So I'll put it in the notes. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Wow. Awesome. I, I love it. That'll definitely be in the show notes because I definitely want everyone, including myself to look into her and see what she has to offer. <laughs> um, wow. Next one. This is fun. What's your favorite food? Oh gosh, this is so easy. <laughs> I know. I am a humongous fan of pickles, like pickled anything, oh. pickled vegetables. Like I love that tart, sour. My mom says, as when I was even three, I'd like break into the refrigerator. Of course, they were the velastic, of course, bed, not live. But I would drink. She's like, she would find me at three years old, like in the fridge, drinking the pickle juice. That's so funny. So my mouth just even starts watering. In fact, I'll have to go probably have a pickle when we're done here. But I make my own sauerkraut. I make my own pickles. I make everything. I love pickled anything, pickled daikon, pickled pickles, pickled, I mean, just everything. So pickles. Mm, 
that's that's awesome I've never heard that one yet (laughs) and it just reminds me of like you said homemade sauerkraut like I've made homemade sauerkraut with my grandma and man like so good ritual right like that also ties you back to your lineage and very cool 100% which is even better are you a past present or future thinker god I wish I was a present thinker but I'm definitely a future thinker well, thinking about your visions and like what you are doing, I mean, you might be a future, maybe. <laughs> a little it's, hard. it's hard to keep me here. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. But we need everyone of every kind. Exactly. So, um, what is your favorite travel destination or a dream destination that you have? What this, you know, I, I, so probably one of my favorite places in the world I've ever been and I've traveled extensively is Turkey actually. Um, it's, it's what I love about it is Turkey itself represents literally the merging of like Europe, the middle East. It's literally like the, 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 um, the Bosphorus, like all that. I mean, literally it is the bridge of ancient and modern times and places like Istanbul is just, just exactly the culmination of that. So I am very, very passionate about that part of the world. I've gone a few times. I'm hoping to get back there again in 2021. If uh, powers be let me, it's the best of all the flavors, the smells, the textures, the foods, the music, the just everything. It's just, it has all my favorite things. I've also super passionate about India. I spent, I've gone there three times. Um, I love Greece. I love anything in the Mediterranean. Um, I now live in a, you know, a tropical environment, half a year down in Mexico. I love different cultures. I love love food, music, anything that's very vibrant and nature really speaks to me. Wow. I knew we would get along and like, we've related to this, but this just hit home. Like I love culture so much. The food, like Turkey, Greece, Mediterranean, like I've been to Croatia. That's the closest Mediterranean, Italy. And man, like I'm coming with you to Turkey because do it. Perfect. Like, let's do it. So good. I always tell people Croatia is if Greece and Italy had a baby. Yes. And so it's like such this divine combination. I went there five years ago. I went there actually 25 years ago when it was still Yugoslavia and that part of the world. And then I went back five years ago and did a 10 day walking trek um, with a bunch of my girlfriends for my birthday. And so it's just that just all about those places just make my heart sing. I, I'm right there with you. So as you were speaking, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I know. Because, like I'm going to overload like with just like urge to go. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like the wanderlust has kicked in. Sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. <laughs> we'll all sorrow together. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. And I know you are a reader. So what are you reading right now? Oh my gosh. Right now I'm kind of in deep dives of everything about deutonomics. Um, deuterium depletion. This also ties right back into the health of our mitochondria and the function of our Krebs cycle, TCA cycle. Um, there's an institute at UCLA, Dr. Laszlo Boros um, is part of that. And his partner, Petra Dorfsman, is an amazing naturopathic doctor who specializes in deutonomics as well. And this is also, I think, the future of medicine. It also shows us where we've come from. We used to have much lower levels of deuterium in our water and our soil. And today, from all the things that have changed in agriculture and food and diet and lifestyle and everything else has really raised our deuterium levels, which basically also age us and damage our mitochondria very dangerously. So I'm reading everything I can because it's pretty heady, heavy biochemistry, but to the very basics, things like sunshine, 
intermittent fasting, um, you know, like these basic things are you know, eating high fat, low carb. These are things that actually lower you to your deuterium levels and help you become even more robust and resilient in medicine. So that's what I'm geeking out on right now. Oh man, I am definitely going to be purchasing that one. <laughs> you, and got, you got to get Petra on your show. Like she's got a good oh, range in, in Laszlo. Yeah. yeah. I, I would love to. I'll definitely, we'll have to connect and see okay, how I can deal. do that. <laughs> yeah, sure. um, and how can listeners connect with you, Dr. Nisha? Oh, thank you. So you can stalk me on um, drnisha.com is my website. Getting ready to have a big facelift to that here in the early part of 2021. So come back. If you show up now, please come back. Sign up. We've got a great newsletter. Um, my gosh, it, it's always loaded with everything I'm up to, what's coming on the horizon, what's interesting to me, a blog, all the things. But you can also find me on Metabolic Approach to Cancer Facebook page, Dr. Nasha Inc. Facebook page, Dr. Nasha Winters or Dr. Nasha Inc. I can't even remember. Instagram. I'm I'm terrible with social media. So I'll get in the show notes. Don't worry. You'll give in there. Thank you. But yeah, please, please find me there and please check out Believe Big Institute of Health. Soon our website will be po- It's right now underneath the believebig.org, but come back and look for bbinstituteofhealth.org. And this is all the information about the not-for-profit hospital research institute that we're building in the Southwest. And that's going to be weaving in a lot of these conversations as well. Perfect. That'll, yes, I'll be in the show notes. I'll be checking all those out as well. This was such an honor. I know the Terrain 10 questionnaire will also be in the show notes for everyone to look at, go through. I know we touched base on it. And so I think that'll be a great resource for everyone. Other than that, thank you so much, Dr. Nisha. Like it's been an honor. There's so much information that you shared in here, but it's all so relevant, so relevant to our times and what what we ultimately need to be doing with our health um, and there needs to be changes. So thank you. Thank you so much, April. And to you and all of your listeners, please, please, please thrive on. 